When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders, named Jairus, came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. And a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realised that power had gone out from him and he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? Oh, you see people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, While this commotion and wailing, the child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were there with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitakum, which means, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, you are a great and powerful God and thank you that in this account uh, that we have in uh, the Gospel of Mark, we have a, a picture of your greatness and your power uh, which meets us in our, in our needs. Uh, and Lord, we pray that as we reflect on that this morning that you would give us eyes to see Jesus for who he is uh, and help us to... Uh, feel in our very being uh, the satisfaction that comes uh, from knowing him uh, and the hope that we have in him. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, well, if I was to ask you what it, uh, what it is that you most need, I wonder what your answer uh, to that question would be. So what is it that you most need? Uh, you know, maybe the thing you most need is a new wheelbarrow, uh, I remember growing up, we had this dodgy old wheelbarrow with a metal wheel, of all things, that it was the hardest thing to push around, and if the ground was muddy, 
uh, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd push it and it would just, it would just dig in. It was, it was hopeless. Who makes a, who makes a wheelbarrow with a, with a metal wheel? Uh, may, maybe the thing you most need is, an, is a holiday. You're, just, you're dead tired uh, and you just need a break. Uh, and tomorrow is uh, the day that you're going to recover. Uh, maybe the thing you need is a, is a new car. Uh, you're, you're driving around in, in a bomb, it barely starts, uh, you've got to whack it. I knew this guy, used to have a Corolla, and he'd carry a spanner uh, with him <laughs> wherever he went, and he'd have to whack the starter motor. Uh, uh, whenever It was a great car. Uh, it was still going 50 years later. Uh, maybe you need a new outfit. Uh, maybe, the, uh, maybe what you've got is just, you know, you're dressing to impress, but it's... Uh, you're just not that impressive. Uh, maybe you need a new job. You're not happy where you are. Uh, maybe you need a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife. Maybe that's uh, what you think will make your life uh, whole or complete. Uh, my mum used to have this saying, uh, you don't need it, you want it. I don't know, did anyone else's mum ever say something like that? Um, so we'd say something like, I need, a, I need a new pair of shoes, Mum. And Mum would go, you don't need it. You want it. And so after a while, it would come out of your mouth and just as you said it, you go, oh, no. You don't need it, Carl. You want it. Uh, well, you know, there are lots of things, I think, that are a bit like that, aren't there? Aren't there? That, we, that we think, wow, this is what I really need. But actually, we don't, need, we don't really need that. We want that. But there are some things that we do really need uh, that we really need to have uh, access to. Uh, we saw last week, for those who are here in our journey through uh, Mark's biography of Jesus, uh, that according to Jesus, the thing that we most need, the thing that all of us need most of all, is forgiveness, uh, forgiveness from God. All of us uh, need that. All of us, apart from Jesus, are estranged from God. Uh, we're, we're under God's wrath and God's condemnation, and we need God to forgive us. That is the thing that we need most of all. But here in this passage, I think Jesus highlights another thing which we need, which would come, if you like, a close second. The thing we need most of all is forgiveness, but there's, there's other things. There's another thing that we really deeply need as well that we feel so keenly, so acutely. You see, the reality is that we live in a broken world. I was talking to uh, an older fellow recently who was in his 70s and he said to me, Carl, sometimes I look at my hand uh, and I think to myself, whose old hand is that? That is... (laughs) When did that happen? When did that happen that, that that became part of me, when that became who I was? Uh, I know other people who, as they've aged, they've been frustrated by the fact that they're getting weaker and weaker. They can't lift the things that they used to lift. They can't open the jars that they used to open. They don't have the sense of balance that they used to have. Uh, They can't do the things that they used to do. It's frustrating. It's debilitating. But you don't have to be old to know that there's something not right with the world. You only have to have a fall uh, or break a bone or even just stub a toe Uh, You only have to do that to realise that the world is not all as it should be. And in the passage that we're looking at today, Mark introduces us to Jesus as the one who not only brings us forgiveness for sins, 
but who also can fix the brokenness of our world and the brokenness of us as human beings, the brokenness of our own bodies. Uh, In the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the first couple of chapters of Mark, and today we're picking things up a little bit further on in the ministry of Jesus. By now, Jesus has done quite a few miracles. He's cured leprosy. Uh, He's uh, he's made a paralysed man walk. He's driven out demons from people. He's also begun to do quite a bit of teaching about who God is and how it is that we can know God. But here in this story, uh, Jesus takes things to the next level. He raises somebody from the dead. Uh, He's just crossed over from a a Gentile region, from a non-Jewish region. He's back in kind of the Jewish uh, area. And as he returns, one of the local synagogue leaders named Jairus comes up to plead for his help. Uh, The synagogues were kind of the places in those days where the Jewish uh, people met to learn about God and to worship God. We actually have a synagogue uh, in, in our city, across from St. St John's, the bar, not the church. Uh, <laughs> I, I probably go more to the bar, but anyway. Um, uh, it's, and it's actually an historic, uh, a piece of historic architecture. You should, uh, you should check it out. But, but synagogues were the places where Jewish people met to learn about God and, and, and to worship God, and they were sort of, if you like, the Jewish, the first century Jewish churches, uh, where, where, where they would gather for religious purposes. And Jairus, we're told, is one of the leaders uh, of those local synagogues. Uh, Jairus is desperate because his daughter is sick and near to death. And so in his desperation, he comes to Jesus. He comes to plead with Jesus for help. Uh, and he says in verse 23, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. It's quite an extraordinary statement, actually, of faith and trust in Jesus and in his power. Jairus says to Jesus, all that you need to do is come and put your hands on her and she's she's going to be healed. You just need to come and touch her and whatever it is that's wrong with her will, will go away. Jairus knows that Jesus is a man who can help him. Uh, who can help his daughter in, uh, in this time of need. And in response to that plea, uh, Jesus agrees. He agrees to go and to help. Uh, but strangely, kind of, uh, we're just kind of setting ourselves up for, for, for all this happening and Mark kind of distracts us or, or, or takes us onto another thing that's going on. Uh, he tells us along the way as Jesus is going to help Jairus' daughter that uh, and this huge crowd is going along with him, that this woman comes up uh, to Jesus who's been bleeding for 12 years. Uh, She's had this condition uh, which hasn't gone away. It's been there for 12 years. Uh, And over that 12 years, she's tried all kinds of things to find a cure. Uh, So listen to these words from verse 26. She'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. I had a friend, actually, uh, who, who's chronically ill, uh, who was studying with me at Bible college for a time and now is, is bedridden, <laughs> and he loved that verse. <laughs> Suffered many things at the hand of many doctors. Uh, not to, not to, to begrudge doctors, but he, but, 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 but he had this hope, I think, you know, that the doctors would be able to heal him, and, and, and they couldn't. Uh, I love to read those books and to watch uh, documentaries about the history of medicine because it's fascinating, actually, to see some of the ridiculous and barbaric things that doctors uh, used to do to people in the name of medicine. 
Uh, Michael Mosley's Blood and Guts, The History of Surgery is wonderful. It's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's next level disturbing. But, um, uh, you, know, le- you know, leeching, which has actually come back into fashion, I think, these days. Uh, but uh, for syphilis, I think people used to implant wax noses, uh, but the women couldn't get too close to the fireplace uh, because they would melt. Uh, anyway, there you go. But uh, we're in a much better place these days uh, in the sense that professional medical practice is evidence-based. Uh, uh, that is, that therapies have to go through uh, scientific rigour. They have to be shown to work before uh, they're accepted. But even today, there are things that doctors can't fix, aren't there? There are, uh, there are conditions that doctors don't know uh, what to do with. In fact, it's probably more accurate to say um, uh, that, that, you know, among the many conditions that doctors can fix, there's probably just as many that they can't. Uh, my sister's a medical researcher. She deals with uh, immune disorders that, you know, statistically occur in less than, you know, maybe one in a million or one in, you know, hundreds of millions. They're incredibly rare, uh, and nobody knows uh, how to deal with them. Uh, when I was growing up, the big fear was AIDS, uh, and there were those terrifying ads on television of the Grim Reaper bowling uh, people over in the bowling alley. Uh, they were terrifying ads, uh, I remember as a child. Uh, and, and while AIDS now is not the death sentence that it was in the 80s, um, still for every medical breakthrough that medicine kind of seems to have, there are still just as many things that, uh, many, as many new battles that seem to arise. Uh, antibiotics are losing their effectiveness at treating infections. Uh, so new strains of uh, resistant superbugs are developing which can't be treated. It's a terrifying thought, actually, to, to think about returning to a world which is pre-antibiotics. Uh, to illustrate the, the reality of that, it's always remarkable, I think, to realise that the first man to be ever treated with penicillin uh, was, uh, had succumbed to an, an infection, not because... He had gone to some, you know, extreme place and developed, you know, kind of contracted some peculiar bacteria. He was actually in suburban kind of uh, England and he scratched himself on a rose bush uh, and he contracted a severe infection. Uh, They they treated him with penicillin initially. Uh, He improved, but they ran out. It was so early on they ran out of penicillin and he succumbed and died. Isn't Isn't that terrifying? Uh, to think of a world, we are so used to the reality of antibiotics, uh, but to think of a world that's so fragile, so brittle, uh, where, where health is, uh, is so on edge. We should be immensely grateful, I think, for the medical advances that we have access to and we should take advantage uh, of the resources that we have available, but we also have to realise, I think, that medicine has its limitations. We should trust uh, our doctors as people who know more about medicine than we do. We're amateurs, they're the professionals. But we also need to realise that they're not God, that they can't cure everything. Uh, Medicine can't fix everything and I'm sure there are many people here who can attest uh, to that reality uh, in one way or another. But this woman who was in a situation like that. She, she, she'd struggled with health for 12 years, uh, severely. She was deeply afflicted. She comes to Jesus in search of healing, and the moment that she touches Jesus, she's healed. 
Jesus is so powerful that the moment that she, that she brushes against him, she's cured. Twelve years gone in an instant. And there are those powerful words in verse 29, immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. Straight away. Straight away she was healed. She was a new person. I said last week that Jesus shows that our deepest need is not health but forgiveness, but that doesn't mean that our health is unimportant. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care about our physical wholeness. In the Bible's view of the world, sickness and death is one of the consequences of sin, not in the sense that we can trace every sickness to come some kind of sin that happened in the past in our lives, but rather sin, or so rather sickness and death is a consequence of uh, sin as a whole, our own sin and the sin of the whole world. Sometimes the sickness and death that we suffer is the consequences of other people's wrong actions. But in the Bible's view of the world, sickness and death is an outworking of the rift of our relationship with God. It's like a poison that kind of, uh, that kind of spreads out uh, and destroys our lives. But on the flip side, the healing and restoration of our relationship with God is, is, is then the source of the healing of our physical lives uh, and our physical wholeness. The key point Uh, is really that Jesus is not just interested in forgiveness, but also in our physical restoration. But that restoration is, generally speaking, for the future when Jesus returns to gather those uh, who know him. What Jesus really does in this miracle is to show the inbreaking of what he will do at the end of history. The new creation is reaching into the present time. When he comes again, he'll put the world right. He'll put right the people who... Uh, trust in him. I don't know uh, what you're suffering from, if you're suffering from anything at the moment, but it's a great hope, I think, if you are, to know that Jesus uh, promises, that God promises that one day he will put you right. Uh, For some of us, that's not a small hope. Uh, Some people here, I'm sure, live in constant pain. Uh, Whether that's physical pain or emotional pain, uh, whatever the kind of pain, both of those can be deeply debilitating. Uh, To take a a simple example uh, of that, for most people going to bed is a happy thought, you know, (laughs) yes, finally. But for some people, they live in so much pain, say from something like, something as simple, if you like, as arthritis, that the idea of going to bed is a mild nightmare. Eight hours in bed. I can't think of anything worse. Some people have tried every kind of cure and have spent thousands of dollars. They've tried doctors, they've tried diet, they've tried alternative therapies, and yet they continue to suffer. They don't need reminding that we live in a broken world. For people like that, people like this woman here in this passage, it's no light thing then to say that one day, if you trust in Jesus, he'll, he'll put that right. That one day pain will disappear, that one day you'll be whole, that one day you'll be healed, that one day you'll no longer have to worry about waking up in pain or living another day in pain. 
You'll never have to worry about whether uh, you'll, you'll make it through the day. You'll never have to worry about maybe the fix, whether, you know, maybe this fix is only temporary. Maybe it's going to come back again. Jesus will fix you and you'll never be the same again. For some of us, that's an enormous hope. For some of us, that reality doesn't seem all that fantastic because our bodies haven't really failed us yet. But whoever we are, the day will come when they do, when our bodies do fail us. And this hope will burn more brightly than it does now. The day will come when we realise that we're not invincible, that we are broken, and that the promise of Jesus is a great promise indeed. We all need fixing, and Jesus shows that he is a man who can meet that need. So Jesus heals this woman, uh, in a sense, even without even knowing it, or perhaps better, without even meeting her. Uh, But he's unwilling to leave it at that. So he heals her, but then he also pushes on deeper uh, to to, to something more than that. Uh, In in some ways, this woman is a great example of faith and persistence. Uh, Like the four friends in the story last week uh, who brought the paralysed man, she knows that she just has to get to Jesus and he can fix things. Uh, That's a, that's a tremendous amount of faith, isn't it? I mean, she's... She's been to these doctors, she's tried things for 12 years uh, and yet she's not afraid to, to, to think to herself, actually, you know what, Jesus can help me. Uh, he can do what no one else can do. She has this extraordinary faith. Uh, she says to herself, if only I can touch the edge of his garment, I'll be healed. Uh, one person has written uh, about that. Uh, uh, he writes, she does the one and only thing for a disciple to do. She heard... She came and she touched. She heard about Jesus. She heard what he could do. She came to meet him and she reached out uh, for him uh, to receive his healing. And yet, even though she has this wonderful kind of uh, faith, there's still something more that she needs. And so Jesus, because of that, is unwilling to just kind of let her slip back into the crowd. Jesus knows that something has happened. He knows that power has gone out from him. And so he looks around. He's trying to find out who's done this. The disciples think he's crazy, uh, asking, who's who's bumped into me? Who's touched me? Uh, They're saying, well, look around you. There's a crowd there, Jesus. (laughs) Lots of people are bumping into you. But the question that Jesus asks is not for the disciples' benefit. It's for the woman. Who is it who's bumped into me? She's there hiding. She's thinking, oh man, he knows what's happened. Uh, I've just been healed. I've, I've just come up behind him. I've snuck up on him. Uh, I've been healed. I've touched him. I've, I've gone away. Uh, and Jesus says, who is it? Who did this? Uh, eventually she comes forward. She's terrified. She's shaking. She falls down before Jesus. She confesses what she's done. But the reaction that she get, gets is not the one that she's expecting. She probably thinks, oh man, he's going he's gonna, to blow up you know he's, he's gonna what are you doing what do you think you've done but instead of rebuking her jesus says daughter your faith has healed you go in peace and be freed from your suffering he could have just let her go couldn't he could have just could have just let her go back to her life but he he doesn't do that 
He calls her daughter. It's an expression of deep affection and, and, and kindness. She would have been ostracised, this woman, because of her condition. But Jesus says to her, welcome to the family. And not just welcome to any family. Welcome to the family of God. Jesus could have let her go back to her life, but he wants her to know that what she needs is not the hem of his clothes, but Jesus himself. It's not enough to hear Jesus, to come to Jesus, to reach out, to touch Jesus. Jesus wants us to know him and Jesus wants to know us. Jesus wants to challenge her simplistic understanding of her relationship with him. She wants to be healed and kind of disappear, go back to her life. But Jesus wants to meet her and to know her. Here's that same author again. He says, she wants a cure, a something. Whereas Jesus desires a personal encounter with someone. He's not content to dispatch a miracle. He wants, an, he wants to encounter a person. In the kingdom of God, miracle leads to meeting. Discipleship is not simply getting our needs met. It's being in the presence of Jesus, being known by him and following him. Discipleship is not simply getting our needs met. It's being in the presence of Jesus, being known by him and following him. So often people come to Jesus, they want to be healed, however that might be, whether it's the healing of forgiveness uh, or whether it's the hope of life after death, or whether it's the hope of physical healing, whether in this life or the life to come. But God wants something more than our physical or emotional or our spiritual healing. God wants us to know him through Jesus. God wants us to have a, a, a relationship with him, and not a bad relationship, but a good one, a working relationship. God wants us to call him father, and he wants us to call Jesus brother. Jesus is not the kind of God that we need to sneak up on. Get what we need and then sneak away. Jesus is the kind of God who takes outcasts by the hand and welcomes them in. He's the kind of God who takes the despised and calls them daughter. He's the kind of God who speaks to those who live in the shadows and invites them out of the darkness and into the light. So Jesus shows his power, uh, he heals this woman who's suffered incredibly, but he also invites her into a, a relationship to know him, uh, not just to be healed by him. Finally, Jesus gets on to the original task, the original mission, which was to heal Jairus' sick daughter. Uh, he's still in the middle of speaking with this healed woman when the news comes from Jairus' house uh, that his daughter has died. But the messengers come not only with this news, they also come with a suggestion. They say in verse 35, your daughter's dead, why bother the teacher anymore? Jesus might be able to heal the sick, they think to themselves, but what can he do once she's already dead? You may as well just come back home and leave Jesus to do whatever he wants. But Jesus, overhearing that, uh, encourages Jairus and says, don't be afraid, just believe. You know, I'm, I'm still going to come. Uh, and I can still do good. Don't be afraid, just believe. Uh, it's not that fear is the opposite of faith, uh, as though if we're afraid we mustn't have faith. That's not what Jesus is kind of getting at. 
Rather, he's getting at the idea that fear can undermine our faith. The danger for Jairus was that he would listen to his friends and not to Jesus. Uh, He would listen to his friends who were saying, don't bother the teacher, rather than Jesus who was saying, trust me. Fear overcoming faith would end in Jairus saying to Jesus, the messengers are right, Jesus, don't bother coming, just stay here, I'll go back, I'll bury my daughter. That's fear overcoming faith. But faith overcoming fear is what Jairus actually did. That is, allowing Jesus to still come. Uh, It's implicitly saying, Jairus implicitly saying to his friends, you might think that he can't do anything, but I'm going to trust that he can do something. The choice is not between rational belief and irrational, uh, sorry, between rational fear and irrational belief, but between irrational fear and trust based on the evidence of who Jesus is. So what do I mean by that? Well, think about uh, a fear of heights, for instance. So a fear of heights is not usually a rational fear. Well, sometimes it's rational, I guess. But anyway, just just bear with me. But uh, a a year or so ago, I went uh, on the Illawarra treetop walk. It's near Wollongong. And it's one of those raised canopies, uh, so raised steel pathways, you know, uh, that they put you know, 20 or 30 metres above the forest uh, floor. Uh, and what makes this one particularly fun is it's on the edge of the Great Dividing Range, uh, just kind of overlooking Wollongong. So it's about 700 metres above sea level and you're just kind of looking down over the edge of the mountain range. It's not as though it's on a sheer cliff or anything like that, but you certainly get the sense of being up high uh, and just off the ground, but also uh, looking out over the edge uh, over Wollongong. Uh, but the thing is, right, for, for a lot of people, that's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty sobering experience. Uh, it's a kind of walkway, it's one of those metal walkways that you can look straight down the bottom. You know, it's just a, a grill kind of thing. Uh, so you can see you're 20 or 30 metres up, it's pretty obvious. Uh, and it also has some of those cantilevered walkways, uh, you know, so they, they go out and cantilevered walkways have a habit of uh, swaying and swinging in the breeze, right? Yeah. Uh, and then to top, top it off, there's, there's a tower in the middle that goes up, I think, something like 45 metres above the forest floor and there's this kind of winding spiral staircase uh, around the outside. When I went, I did go up to the top, but uh, not everyone who came with me went up the top. Uh, but... You know, for most people, that's a pretty terrifying experience. You're on these walkways, they're bouncing around, you're looking over the edge. Uh, It's terrifying. Now, I know the physics of cantilevered walkways. I understand precisely how that works. I I understand the physics of of, of towers and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I know that the the walkway is rated for 280-kilometre-an-hour winds, which means that in calm conditions, there's a big leeway, right, for catastrophic failure. Uh, but when you tread onto that thing, you know, all the physics goes out the window, doesn't it, right? You, you think to yourself, oh man, this thing is going to fall. This is, <laughs> I'm going to die. I'm going to die. My life is over. Uh, is that rational faith or is that, is, that, is that rational fear or is that irrational fear? Uh, that's irrational, isn't it? It's irrational because the evidence says there's no reason to be afraid. And so walking along uh, 
that the treetop walk is an exercise in trust. Uh, It's an exercise in saying, I know that I'm afraid, but I also know that the evidence says that I can trust this walkway. The evidence says, I know that I'm safe. And it's really the same in relationship to Jesus. We might be afraid, but actually we need to say to ourselves, I'm not going to let fear keep me from what the evidence says. And the evidence says that Jesus is a man who can be trusted. Jesus is a man who has power to heal. Jesus is a man who has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus is a man who has the power to raise the dead. Jairus trusted that Jesus could raise his daughter from the dead. Why was that? Because he'd already seen Jesus do those other miraculous things. He saw that Jesus was a man who could be trusted. And so he didn't let his irrational fear overcome his rational trust. He let his trust overcome his fear. And remarkably, I think, like on that raised walkway, Often the further you get along the journey, the more the fear subsides. So you start off at the beginning, don't you? You start off going to yourself, oh man, I'm going to die, my life is over. And then you begin to exercise that trust, you begin to say to yourself, no actually, this is going to hold me up. And the further you get along, the less you worry. And actually the Christian life is an awful lot like that as well. At the beginning we need to hear those words so often, don't we? Don't be afraid, just believe. But the further we go along the journey, the more we trust Jesus, the more it is that we think to ourselves, actually, I don't need to be afraid, do I? The more we trust Jesus, the more we live a life of trust, the more uh, that fear subsides uh, and we have confidence in God. The choice is not here between rational fear and irrational trust, but fear that doesn't make sense and trust that does. So Jairus... Uh, trust Jesus, and because of that, Jesus keeps going with him to his house. Uh, but now as they get there, Jesus uh, leaves the crowd behind and takes with him only his closest disciples, Peter, James and John. Uh, he does that. Uh, it's clear at the end of the passage because uh, he, he, he doesn't want everyone to know yet uh, of all his power. Time will come when Jesus' power will be fully proclaimed, but this is not that moment yet. Uh, When they get to the house, there's this massive commotion, uh, as you can imagine that there would be. A little girl has just passed away and people are weeping and wailing. Uh, And Jesus comes in and says a strange thing, really. He says, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. Uh, And they they can't believe it. They laugh at him. Uh, They think he's deranged. Isn't it obvious why they're wailing? This girl has died. Uh, and isn't it obvious that she's dead and not just asleep? You know, most people know the difference uh, between dead and asleep. It's puzzling why I think Jesus, if he's about to raise this girl from the dead, why does he say she's only asleep? You'd think if you're about to do a miracle like that, that you would say something like, she's obviously completely dead. Uh, and I'm about to raise her from the dead. I mean, you think that would be a much grander statement, wouldn't you? Why does he say that? Why does he say that she's only asleep? It's not that Jesus is pretending, but he's actually making a deeply profound point about the way that the world appears to 
him as God and the, world, the way the world appears to us as human beings. To us, death and sleep are profoundly different things. When you go to sleep, you expect to wake up. Uh, when you go to sleep, there's the possibility of a new day on the other side. When you go to sleep, you're not saying goodbye to friends for the last time, but you're basically saying, I'll see you tomorrow. But with death, there is no waking up. There is no tomorrow. There is no new day. It's a bit like the difference between spraining your ankle and losing a foot, right? If you sprain your ankle, you think to yourself, well, I know that it's going to get better. But if you lose your foot in some kind of catastrophic accident... There's no coming back. It's not, it's not going to reappear. We look at a person who's died and we see the finality of it. We see the irreversibility of it. But Jesus looks at death and it looks to him not much different from sleep. How is that? Well, here's the profound thing, I think. Like you and I whisper a word to a little child to wake them up in the morning from sleep, Jesus can whisper a word to a child who has died and they come back to life. It's remarkable, isn't it? That's a profound difference. We, we, we speak words to wake people up who are sleeping. Jesus speaks words and people rise to life. You and I can stand next to the body of someone that we love and we can whisper and we can speak and we can even yell, but it won't wake them up. And even if we don't seriously think that it will, many of us have sat or will sit in our lives by the side of bodies, of people that we have loved and we will whisper words that we wish that they could hear and wish that they could respond to. But we know that those words are spoken in vain, don't we? We know that they won't hear us. We know that they won't respond. We know that they won't get up. We know that life won't go on as it has because death is final. It's not like going to sleep. But Jesus comes on the scene and he says, you know what, for me it's just the same. For you, those two things are worlds apart. But when I speak, dead people rise to life again. Jesus takes this girl by the hand, he tells her to get up and she does. He doesn't do anything more than that. He has no fancy incantation, there's no spell, there's no special ritual, there's no ceremony, just a word, just a command, and she obeys. This is not magic. This is not a man who needs to bribe the gods or the magical powers to do his bidding. This is a man with authority. This is a man who can do what only God can do. This is a man who gives life with a word and a man who takes life away with a word. Because Jesus is God, with just a word, he can raise the dead. Listen to these words of Jesus uh, that the Apostle John records in his gospel. 
Jesus says, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will, will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. One day Jesus will speak again, and it won't uh, be just one little girl who rises from the dead, but everyone who has ever lived across the whole course of human history, everyone who has ever lived will hear his voice and will rise some to life and some to condemnation. For those who've known Jesus and loved Jesus, they'll rise to life, they'll rise to be welcomed as old friends. But for those who have not known Jesus or loved Jesus, they'll rise to condemnation. We think of death as the end, but death is not the end. It's like sleep. Because one day Jesus will speak a word and we will rise to face him. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is, will we face him as a friend or will we face him as an enemy or face him as a stranger? Mark introduces us to Jesus who meets our need, who can address our pain. And though Jesus may not deal with it all now, he will deal with it one day. What do you and I need most of all? We need forgiveness. But we also need life. What we need is not just no more joint pain, although that would be nice, no more sleepless nights. No, what we need is the end of death. And all our pain and all our misery is just really the beginnings of death working itself out in our lives now. It's just death already having the impact that it has on our lives. Jesus here not only says that he can do something about death, he shows that he can do it by raising this girl from the dead. One day, uh, every one of us will walk the high wire of death. Uh, And we can walk that wire alone because we let fear triumph over trust or we can walk that wire with Jesus, the one for whom death is like sleep. Just a word and we'll wake up. Just a word and we'll keep on living. We can walk that wire with Jesus Not with the hem of his cloak, but we can walk with him, a real person who knows us and who loves us. And we can walk with him now. We don't have to wait till that day. We ought not to wait till then. We can walk with Jesus now. So let me invite you to start walking with Jesus today. Don't fear, but believe. Or if you're already walking with Jesus, then let me encourage you to keep walking with Jesus and to keep learning to trust him uh, and to keep learning that he meets all our needs. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, We want to uh, acknowledge to you all the 
pain and suffering of our lives uh, in this world uh, of sin and death. Uh, Lord, some of us are struggling immensely. Uh, And like the woman that you healed uh, 2,000 years ago, Lord, some of us here uh, have been struggling with ill health for many years. Uh, Some of us have been debilitated by it, uh, crushed by it, worn down by it. Some of us, Lord, have not uh, suffered those things ourselves but have been worn down and crushed by the burdens and the ill health of others that we love. Uh, Lord, some of us have been worn down uh, by the reality of walking alongside those whom we love in sickness uh, and in death. And Lord, we just want to load all those things up and cast them before you as the God who can meet all our needs, uh, as the God who not only forgives us but who restores us and makes us whole, the God who will wipe away every tear, the God who will heal every brokenness, the God for whom sleep and death appear so little different because you are so powerful as to be able to speak a word and to grant life again. Lord, we pray that you would speak your words into our lives so that we would know Jesus and know the hope and the healing that comes through him. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.